And I hope that Jesus forgives him just like he does the rest of us. Doug Wilson, Moscow minister and columnist with the Idahonian Daily News. The question that confronts us is what does it mean in a disobedient culture to be prophetic? There will be a place for same-sex couples? Uh, no, no marriage. Even though it's the law of the land in the United States? Uh, just like Roe used to be. We want to turn the world upside down, and you don't turn the world upside down by being nice. I believe that we are in, in this polytheistic, pluralistic moment, and the desperate need of the hour is for our Christian leadership to say, Jesus is Lord, and there is no other. Thank you, Dr. J. That was fantastic. It was a it was a real honor and a and a gift to us uh, at uh, Cross Politic. I think I don't remember when the first time was we had you on, but we found you very early on in, in the lockdowns. As I may, maybe it was right after the Wall Street Journal uh, um, op-ed, perhaps. Um, but um, what a breath of fresh air it was, as you said. You know, are we crazy? Are we the only ones? And we said. No, there's a professor from Stanford that agrees with us. <laughs> Can't be crazy. Uh, it was a, it was a, it's been a huge uh, gift to get to know you and, and finally have you um, here in person as well. So thank you so much, and thank you for your courage. Seriously, thank you. Uh, as Gabe mentioned earlier, he doesn't always tell me what um, is going on. He just brings me along. I am his pastor, but he's my deacon, so he just makes me go places. Um, I'm, I'm pastor of King's Cross Church in Moscow, Idaho, um, and um, co-host of Cross Politic um, show, my husband, father, and I'm grateful to be here. He told me that my assignment tonight was to talk to you about Idaho and Jesus, which is very specific, or not. But let me bring this in for a landing uh, quickly. Uh, but I want to start by reading you something that I found um, several years ago that's um, haunted me uh, for well, ever since I read it. Um, on September 1st, 2014, so this is um, almost 10 years old now, nine years old, uh, Mallory Millet wrote this in an article for frontpagemag.com. I think you can still find it there. I hunted it up um, in the last year or so just to see if it was still there. Frontpagemag.com, Mallory Millet. She writes this. It was 1969. Kate, which is her sister, invited me to join her for a gathering at the home of her friend, Lila Karp. They called the assemblage a consciousness-raising group, a typical communist exercise, something practiced in Maoist China. We gathered at a large table as the chairperson opened the meeting with a back-and-forth recitation, like a litany, a type of prayer done in Catholic churches. But now it was Marxism, the church of the left, mimicking religious practice. Why are we here today? She asked. To make revolution, they answered. 
What kind of revolution, she replied. The cultural revolution, they chanted. And how do we make cultural revolution, she demanded. By destroying the American family, they answered. How do we destroy the family, she came back. By destroying the American patriarch, they cried exuberantly. And how do we destroy the American patriarch, she replied. By taking away his power. How do we do that? By destroying monogamy, they shouted. How can we destroy monogamy? Then Mallory interjects here. Their answer left me dumbstruck, breathless, disbelieving my ears. Was I on planet Earth? Who were these people? Their answer was, by promoting promiscuity, eroticism, prostitution, homosexuality, they resounded. They proceeded, Mallory says, with a long discussion on how to advance these goals by establishing the National Organization of Women. It was clear they desired nothing less than the utter deconstruction of Western society. The upshot was that the only way to do this was, quote, to invade every American institution. Everyone must be permeated with the revolution. The media, the education system, universities, high schools, K through 12, school boards, etc., then the judiciary, the legislatures, the executive branches, and even the library system. Mallory writes, it all fell on my ears as a ludicrous scheme, as if they were a band of highly imaginative children planning a Brinks robbery. To me, this sounded silly. And here we are, all the way down to the libraries. That was in 1969. Incidentally, there was a bill passed by the Idaho legislature this last session seeking to protect children from pornography in our libraries that was vetoed by our governor and then failed to, be, to override his veto by one vote. So Idaho libraries are included in this takeover. How did this happen? How did this happen? There are many reasons. There are, there are many reasons. But fundamentally, it has happened because we have been disobedient to God. We have been disobedient to God in our families and our churches in particular. The Bible is clear that when God's people disobey, his blessing is not on them. His blessing cannot be upon them. In Deuteronomy, it says that when God's blessing is upon his people, one person will chase a thousand. But it says, later on, it says, how is it that five people are chasing 10,000 of us? And it says, that's only possible if their God has left them. If you think about it for a second, the, the people that are chasing us, the people who are chasing us, uh, are a tiny fraction of the population. Compared to those who name the name of Christ, we have an absolute majority, an overwhelming majority. But we are being chased. And Deuteronomy says, how is it 
that my people will be chased by a tiny minority? Well, that's what happens when they have forsaken their God. And so their God has forsaken them. So what I want to do is walk through four areas of sin in our families and churches with the goal that we might see more clearly how we have failed and repent before the Lord so that his blessing might return to us and to our children in this land. But what I'm thinking here is perhaps not the obvious sins. I'll mention them. We'll get there. You know them if you're at an event like this. But I think oftentimes we, we only see uh, the, the ugliness, uh, uh, sort of the, the end result, where it gets the ugliest. But the Bible teaches us that there's actually a genealogy of sin. People don't just one day wake up and say, you know what, um, double mastectomy for a teenage girl, that sounds great. People don't just want, uh, wake up one day and say, you know, uh, let's, let's butcher 65 million babies. That, that people don't wake up one day and do that. You're warmed up to it. You grow into that. There's a genealogy of sin. And so what I'm hoping to do here is identify several sins that I think are closer to the root of our problems. Not because the big ones don't matter, but because these are at the roots. And these are the ones that are often most prevalent in conservative and Christian families and churches. So number one, we've not honored our fathers and mothers. We've not honored them. The fifth commandment is clear. Honoring father and mother is the first commandment with the promise that it may go well with you and you may live long in the land. That's repeated in Ephesians 6. If it's not going well for us in the land, maybe we ought to look here first. If it's not going well for us, maybe we ought to look here first. Have we honored our fathers and mothers? And the answer is no, we haven't. One of the most glaring examples of this is we've come up with a civil equivalent, a federal equivalent of what Jesus explicitly condemned the Pharisees for in the first century. In, in Mark's gospel, Jesus condemns the Pharisees for allowing the traditions of men to trump the clear word of God, the commands of God. And he says, let me give you an example. The law of God says, honor your father and mother. And Jesus even cites the death penalty. He says, the law of God says that if you curse father and mother, you're liable to the death penalty. But you have said that if a man says to his father and mother, this is a Corbin, this is a gift to the temple for the building program, then whatever you might have been profited by me, whatever I might have used to support you in your old age, I'm free. And you do not allow him to care for his father and mother. That's Mark 7. What do we do? We establish social security. And the sin goes both ways. Parents have determined to receive no help from their children, and children have determined not to help them, to require the government to do it for them. Say, well, whatever I needed to pay for, I sent it in my taxes already. And then we created a culture of nursing homes where we shipped them off, where we don't have to see them, well, we don't have to talk to them. We don't have to hear that story one more time. I think this failure came into high relief during COVID. You've just heard about it. When many of the nursing homes in this nation were hit the hardest, this was partially due to bureaucratic incompetence, but it was also an indication of our failure as families 
and our failure to honor our parents and our grandparents. There are some conditions, of course, that certainly require extra medical care. My, my, own, my, my wife's grandparents had Alzheimer's. They needed a care facility. But because of the culture we created of sort of this home takes care of them and we are the professionals and, and sort of an arm's length for family members, when the lockdowns came down and my wife and I drove back to Maryland in June 2020, the last time we saw my wife's grandparents was through glass. We were allowed to hand a cell phone in because you know cell phones are very sanitary. We could talk to them with a cell phone. But that was the last time we saw my wife's grandparents who died alone. We did that. We created a culture. Again, there's parents and grandparents have different needs and we need to care for them. But my point is that our job, Jesus says that honoring father and mother means us caring for our parents in their old age. Jesus says that it requires us to care for our grandparents in their old age so that it will go well with us in the land. Not only did we create those conditions in which it allowed so many to die and die alone, but one of the things that we did in all of this was we refused, we, we, put, them in, we put them away from us as a culture for decades, even before the COVID thing, we put them away from us, holding them at, at arm's length, paying people off maybe to, to take care of them when they should have been surrounded by their people. They should have been surrounded by their people as they're gathered to their people. That's the Old Testament image of, of, an old, of someone dying. They're gathered to their people. That should be the norm. People surrounded by their people as they're gathered by their people. And, and, it's, and it's not just for their sake. The thing that we, we, we need to recognize is that this is as much for our sake. I mean, you hear the history that Dr. J just told about the pandemics that have come before. But we had locked all that wisdom away. We said, Grandpa, we don't want to hear any more from you. We will not listen to you. And so God said, fine. Then that's what you get. You don't want to listen to your father and mother? You don't want to honor your father and mother, your grandpa and your grandma? Fine. We put them away. We shut them down. We put them behind glass. When there is great blessing in listening to our father and mother. It's, there's great blessing. There's great wisdom. There's great, there's great protection to remember what happened before. So we need to repent of not honoring our father and mother. We need to recognize that this is the first command with the promise. And if we want God's blessing on our land, if we want God's blessing on our lives, we must honor father and mother. We must plan to honor them and provide for them. Two, we've not provided an explicitly Christian education for our children. While many well-meaning Christians were involved in starting the public schools in this land, that's true. Many well-meaning Christians started the public schools in our land. When those ventures moved from community family-run ventures to government-run institutions, the writing was on the wall. 
God requires parents to oversee the thoroughly Christian education of their children. This is, this is plain in scripture. Deuteronomy 6 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy might. And these words which I command thee this day shall be in thy heart. And you shall teach them diligently to your children, and you shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise up. That's all day. Right? That's all day. This is, there's, that's, that's the point. When you get up, when you're walking, when you're doing this stuff, and you come home and you lie down. That's everything. You're to talk about the word of God all day long. You're to teach them to love God with all that they are all day long. You shall bind it for a sign upon your hand. They shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the posts of your house and on your gates. Deuteronomy 6. A Christian education is required all day long, everywhere. Ephesians requires the same thing, particularly of dads. It says, you fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Ephesians 6.4. Nurture and admonition, counsel and culture. The culture of the Lord Jesus. That's what you're to bring them up in. The counsel of Christ. What does he say about this? All day long. There's simply no wiggle room here. And it must be said that the central lie of government schools is the lie of neutrality and agnosticism. The central poison, the central virus of public schools is not that boys can be girls as ridiculous as that is. It's not that, you know, the the central lie is not that we evolved from pond scum 65 million years ago, although that's a pernicious lie too. No, the central lie is that you can learn about God's world all day long and not acknowledge him for any of it. That's the central lie. And that was going on for decades before the trannies came along. That was going on for decades before sex education got really weird. Right? For decades, what we put up with was you can go to school all day long, learn about God's world, and not say anything about God. That was the lie. That's the virus. Look, you can enjoy God's world, and you don't have to thank him for it. You can enjoy God's world, and we don't know where it came from. We made excuses about the cost and the difficulty of obeying God. And they're excuses all the same. Yes, is it hard work? Yes. Does it cost money? Yes. Does it take sacrifice? Yes. But there's nothing more valuable than the souls of our children. There's nothing more valuable than the souls of our children. And for decades, we've said, no, actually... We're willing to sacrifice that. So many people say, we can't afford it, we can't afford it. You can't afford not to. You can't afford not to. There are some clear-eyed Christians that called this shot over 100 years ago. It's pretty nuts. Again, this Mallory Millet in 1969 telling us what these, you know, these Marxists are doing. R.L. Dabney was a fierce critic of government schools and wrote as early as 1879. 1879, he wrote this, Christians must prepare themselves then for the following results. All prayers, catechisms, and Bibles will ultimately be driven out of the schools. Prayers, catechisms, and Bibles were in the public schools. 
in the late 1800s. And Dabney said, get ready. They're going to be gone. Some of you might remember when prayer was officially banished. I think that was the last vestige. I know a, a superintendent who was a superintendent down somewhere near here, Garfield or something, and he, uh, I think, got fired for, or, or let go because he, all he had was a Bible on his desk. He wasn't doing anything with it. <laughs> and this was like 20 years ago. Dabney understood very well that without explicitly Christian education, the schools would necessarily become tools of the corruption of children. He wrote this as well. He says, humanity always finds out sooner or later that it cannot get on without a religion. And it will take a false one in preference to none. Infidelity and practical ungodliness will become increasingly prevalent among Protestant youth. Infidelity and practical ungodliness will become increasingly prevalent among Protestant youth. And our churches will have a more arduous contest for growth if not for their very existence. 1879. It's going to get harder and harder for churches to keep the kids. And now we have drag queens and sexual perversion and Marxism. A little bit later in 1897, he wrote a book called The Practical Philosophy, and he wrote this. 1897. Just hold that year in your mind. You may deem it a strange prophecy, but I predict that the time will come in this once free America when the battle for religious liberty will have to be fought all over again and will probably be lost because the people are already ignorant of its true basis and condition. Gabe got arrested. <laughs> Here's one father, grandfather, we've ignored to our shame. Three, we've countenanced no-fault divorce and remarriage. Christians generally know that God hates divorce, but many have not read the rest of the verse in the book of Malachi. It says that God hates divorce because it covers everyone involved in violence. That's what Malachi says. God hates divorce because it is inherently violent. It covers them like a garment in violence. Because when God joins together one man and one woman in the covenant of marriage, they actually become one flesh. God does that. And that means that the only way for that union to be severed is bloody, violent, and deadly. It's true that God himself gives permission for divorce and remarriage in very rare circumstances, essentially when the violence has already occurred. That's essentially when he does give permission to it, when one of the parties has broken covenant through adultery or a violent crime or desertion. But I simply want to note that we have countenanced no-fault divorce for decades, and it has covered our land in violence. God says, if you do this, you're covering everything in violence. And now we have the blood of millions of children by abortion, the violence of fatherlessness, addictions, abuse, suicide, violence in our streets. The statistics are overwhelming that broken families are a central culprit in our cultural meltdown. How many of these trans-confused kids shooting up hormones and having their bodies carved up came from broken homes. But we've countenanced no-fault divorce for decades, and then, while the Bible is equally clear 
that if Christians divorce without biblical grounds, they are to remain unmarried or else be reconciled. We've just followed the world and allowed remarriage. Essentially allowing for, and in some cases, openly condoning what God calls adultery. But if we flout God's word, if we flout God's word doing what seems best to us, what seems reasonable to us, what seems romantic to us, they, they're just not in love anymore. Oh, but she met someone and it's, 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 her, it's her soulmate. Well, then why can't the world do the same? If we flout God's word and say, well, this just, this just, seems, that just seems too difficult. That seems too arduous. It's just, you know, there was no love. Why can't the world reason the same way? Why can't they just live together? Why can't they love someone of the same sex? Why can't they try to find themselves, reinvent themselves? Why not? We taught them that they could do it. The church let it happen for decades. Look the other way didn't confront, didn't shepherd, didn't pastor. We've not been faithful to the wives of our youth. Four, and this actually ties in well with what Gabe was saying earlier. We've not served God with joy. In Deuteronomy, it has this really striking couple of verses. Deuteronomy 28 says, Moreover, all these curses will come upon thee and will pursue thee and overtake thee until you're destroyed. Because you did not listen to the voice of the Lord your God to keep his commandments and his statutes which he commanded thee. And they shall be upon thee for a sign and a wonder and upon thy seed forever. And listen to this last verse. Because you did not serve the Lord your God with joy and with gladness of heart for the abundance of all things. In Romans 1, where it describes the human heart suppressing the truth in unrighteousness, seeing God in all of creation and then refusing to acknowledge him, it says that even though they knew God, they did not glorify God, neither were they thankful. And it's in that ingratitude, it's in that ingratitude that says they become fools and their hearts are darkened and they turn to idols and then God gives them over even to vile affections. The turning point, though, is ingratitude, refusing to thank God that failed to serve the Lord with gladness, with joy for the abundance of all things. Again, I note the verse that Gabe mentioned earlier, rejoice always. Or 1 Thessalonians 5, in everything give thanks, for this is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus. What, what, what shall I do with my life? What should I do with my life? Well, the Bible says, in everything give thanks. This is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus. His will is that in whatever moment you're in, whatever situation you are in, you are giving thanks and you are serving God with gladness and joy. You say, well, but, you know, how can I be joyful after, you know, in the midst of all this? How can I be joyful in the midst of this mess? How can I be joyful when, you know, the same cronies that, that did the lockdowns are still in power giving each other awards? Was there to be joyful about that? How can I be joyful about this mess? And so I want to close with three reasons why you need to be joyful above all things. 
The first reason you must be joyful is because Jesus Christ came to this earth for this mess. He became the curse on the cross for us and our salvation and for the salvation of this sorry planet. Jesus said that he would be lifted up. And when he did, he would, be, he would draw all men to himself. And the Bible says that he said this describing the kind of death he knew that he would die, the death on the cross. And it says earlier in the Gospel of John that Jesus said that just as Moses, was lift, that just as Moses lifted up the bronze serpent in the wilderness on a pole, a bronze serpent pierced, pierced on a pole, so Jesus would be lifted up for the salvation of the world. Jesus was beaten to a bloody pulp, hung naked on a Roman cross for the sins of our nation. He was nailed there for the sins of our land, for the sins of our generation. We cannot get out of this mess apart from Christ and Christ crucified. Politics cannot save us. Politics needs to be saved. You must rejoice because Christ was crucified for us and raised from the dead to deal with this moment. He was crucified and raised for this moment. Rejoice. Christ came for this. You came for this. The second reason you must rejoice is because you have, you can have your sins forgiven. Your sins forgiven. Christ has accomplished our forgiveness in principle, but the center of a Christian joy is the forgiveness of sins. The center of Christian joy is the forgiveness of all your sins. This is the joy that Jesus says that he gives that can never be taken away from you. John says in his letter that he writes so that we may have fellowship. And he says that their fellowship is with the Father and the Son. And, he, and this fellowship he's writing to tell them about so that their joy can be full. Why is there so much joy in being fellowship, in fellowship with God and his people? Because God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. That's where all the joy is, because all there is is light. There's no darkness in him at all. So it's all joy in the fellowship of the Father. It goes on and says, Therefore, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his Son, cleanses us from all sins. But if you say you have no sin, you're a liar, and the truth is not in you. But if you confess your sins, God, who is faithful and just, will forgive you, and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. So this is how you stay in fellowship. This is how you stay in the light. And you stay in the joy. You confess your sins. Have a clean heart. How do you walk in the light as he is in the light? The blood of Jesus Christ cleanses you. And you have fellowship with one another. If you don't have joy, there's a good chance that there's a backlog of gunk in your heart. There's unconfessed sin in your life. You've tried to sweep it under the rug. You've tried to sweep it under the refrigerator. You've tried to shove it in the back of the closet and it's still there and it nags you and it weighs at you. But John wrote that your joy might be full, that you might have fellowship with the Father and the Son, that your sins might be forgiven by the blood of Jesus. So this is how you stay in fellowship and you stay in the light and you stay in the joy. Confess your sins to God and anyone you've sinned against. Determined to have no backlog of sin at all. You want a clean heart, right? You need a clean heart so you can have clean eyes and see the world around you clearly. Do you want to be effective? Do you want to stand up? Do you want to fight? Do you want to imitate Dr. J and have courage? Well, the first step to doing that is having a clean heart. 
Now, if you haven't confessed sins in a long time, if you've just got a backlog, well, then you might have a list. That's going to take a while. Well, you know, all of us have the, you know, the, the, the you know, spring clean, you go out to the garage and you think, well, maybe I should just burn it down. <laughs> right? <laughs> right? Who lives here? What kind of monsters are we? And you look at your heart sometimes and you think, well, here, here, here's the secret to cleaning up big messes. Pick up the thing in front of you. What happens when you haven't done the dishes for a while? Pick up the thing on top. Wash it and put it away. And then do it again. Right? And, and the glorious thing about the gospel is that when you're busy confessing sin, God has a way. The, the promise is really glorious. Is if we confess this, our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. All. And so there's this, there's this supernatural thing that God does where we confess the sins we know about and he washes us clean from all of them. I like to think of it like a little kid who's out playing in the mud and you know, he's just, just having fun in the mud and he looks down at his, his hands all of a sudden and realizes, oh no, there's mud on my hands. And he's, covered, he's covered head to toe. And he runs in and says, Dad, can you wash my hands? And Dad says, yeah, I'm going to put you in the bath. That's what God does with us. If you confess the sins you know about and you confess it to the people you know you've wronged and you do everything you can to make things right between the people you've wronged, he washes you completely clean. He washes you completely clean. So determined to have no backlog of sins, no list, no grievances against anyone, your parents, your spouse, your kids, your boss, your neighbor. Determined to confess your sins as quickly as they happen. Don't let the sun go down on your anger or give place for the devil. Many people leave the door wide open for the devil because they go to bed bitter, angry. And if you've done it for many years, well, that's why you're not joyful. And that's why your heart's not clean. And that's why you can't see clearly. And that's why you don't know what to do. But guess what? You can slam the door right now. Confess it to God, slam the door. Confess, confess it to the Lord, get clean. Get forgiven, get back in the light, get back in the joy, get back in the fellowship, get back in the fight. So confess your sins, get clean hearts, get back in fellowship, get back in the joy. And finally, you should have great joy because Christ is Lord of heaven and earth. He is Lord. He is not trying to be Lord. He's not running for Lord. He ascended into heaven, and he sits at the right hand of the Father. He said, as he ascended into heaven, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, therefore go. He didn't say, I'm going to try to take it. The other day I was thinking about this, and I thought, this is like, you know, mod modern evangelicals, our, our modified Great Commission is something like Jesus saying, now, a moderate amount of power has been given to me, mostly in heaven and very little bit on earth. Therefore, try your best to make a few disciples, maybe a few from every nation. Baptize a few of them. Teach them your favorite parts of the New Testament. That's not what Jesus said. He said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go, disciple the nations. Take them all. Why? Because they belong to Jesus. He purchased them with his blood.
He purchased them with his blood. He bought them. They belong to him. Psalm 2 says that they are his inheritance. Psalm 2, Psalm 2 says that God said, ask of me and I will give you the nations as your inheritance, the ends of the earth as your possession. And he did. He ascended into heaven. He received all glory, all honor, all power, all of it, all the nations. And he said, go take them all, right? How can you not rejoice, right? Where are we in that story? Who knows? Where are we at in that story? But we know the end, right? Right? The end of this story is America bringing glory to King Jesus. The end of this story is America bowing the knee to Jesus. The end of this story is Idaho bowing the knee to King Jesus. That's how this goes. Because Jesus told us to do it. Right? Jesus doesn't send his people on missions that he intends for them to fail. No, he already accomplished it. He bought it. He owns it. And he's the sovereign Lord of Idaho. He's the sovereign Lord of this nation. He's the sovereign Lord of every nation on this earth. So, Jesus is Lord. How can you not be joyful about that? How can that not make you think, wow, I get to serve him. I get to fight giants under King Jesus. I get to fight dragons under King Jesus. You know, think about like being David's mighty men. There were a lot of Philistines and they were bad and they were ugly and they were giants. Right? Right. Right, we, need, we, we need a few Jonathans who say, you know what? God can save with many or few. Right? He doesn't need numbers. Right? What, he needs, what he needs are people with clean hearts, rejoicing in him, repenting of their sins, and clinging to asking God, what, what else is there? Is there anything else I need to confess? Is there anything else I need to make right? Because I want your blessing on me and on my family and on my children and on my church. And if you have that blessing... Deuteronomy promises that 10 will chase thousands rather than being chased. Amen. When I grow up, I want to work for a woke company, like super woke. When I grow up, when I grow up, I want to be hired based on what I look like rather than my skills. I want to be judged by my political beliefs. I want to get promoted based on my chromosomes. When I grow up, I want to be offended by my coworkers and walk around the office on eggshells and have my words policed by HR. Words like grandfather, peanut gallery, long time no see, no can do. When I grow up, I want to be obsessed with emotional safety and do workplace sensitivity training all day long. When I grow up, I want to climb the corporate ladder just by following the crowd. I want to be a conformist. I want to weaponize my pronouns. What are pronouns? It's time to grow up and get back to work. Introducing the number one woke-free job board in America, redballoon.work. The Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and marrow. Through the Spirit, God's Word changes lives. It cuts us to the heart and reshapes us. As you strive to read and study Scripture, having a good set of tools can help. From setting reminders for a great reading plan, to word studies and commentaries that shed light on difficult passages, to listening on the go, the Olive Tree Bible app can help you dig into the Word wherever you are. Olive Tree Bible app. Read, study, listen, anywhere.